Good morning. It's good to see you all. It's an honor for me to have a chance to uh, speak with you again this morning. I hope that you all had a wonderful Christmas. I really hope that it was a Christmas filled with wonder and anticipation. The season of Advent is such a great time of year because in it we remember and we celebrate the story of Christmas. That God loved us so much that He would come in this way, that He would live among us, that He would give Himself for us, and that He would promise to return for us. You know, as I looked around at Christmas time this year, there's decorations everywhere that tell bits of the story of angels and stars and pictures everywhere that have uh, peaceful nativity scenes of Jesus in a manger with family and shepherds and animals gathered round. They have kind of a storybook quality to them, a sort of once upon a time feel that's endearing, but it's also a little bit unsettling. It's unsettling because it's not a storybook story. It's a true story. It really happened. It's a story that started a long time ago, but it still goes on. And we're all part of it. There's an old hymn that was sung in the church that I grew up in. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon the early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me the story slowly with earnest tones and grave. Remember, I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always, if you would really be, in any time of trouble, a comforter to me. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. Yes, and when the world's glory is dawning on my soul, tell me the old, old story. Christ Jesus makes thee whole. I love that hymn. You know, telling the old, old story reminds us of God's love. It reminds us of who He is, but it also reminds us of who we are because we are part of the story. It's a story we find ourselves in. Now, this morning, I'd like to spend our time together telling this story. Not the Christmas story, that's part of it, but the story that's sometimes referred to as the grand narrative. The story of what God has been doing with human beings from the very beginning. But I want us to tell this story in a way that is different from the storybook way. Because I think the storybook way can sugarcoat the truth. Like I said, it's an endearing way. But I think sometimes it keeps us from seeing the stark realities that I think are so important to remind ourselves of. And especially for us as a community of faith, as we commit to be all in in this new year. So I'm going to tell the story with the help of lots of pictures. This is going to be a picture story, so buckle up and let's take a journey back through the story that we find ourselves in. The story begins here, and our knowledge of this story comes from the book of Genesis, where Moses writes about the creation of the world. 
that God created human beings and he put them in this world that he made. Genesis says he put them in the Garden of Eden, a beautiful garden. And no one knows exactly where that was, but Genesis tells us it was somewhere near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which are right about here on this map over here, right about there. You know the story. They lived in this garden happily in relationship with God. And we're going to use works of art through the centuries to help us catch images of the story. And they were there happily with God until they disobeyed God. And then they were cast out of the garden, never to return. And from that point on, God's relationship with human beings changed. In fact, the whole world changed. Paul writes thousands of years later that the whole world, all of creation, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And that creation waits in eager expectation to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Something needed to be done. A plan to redeem human beings and even to redeem the whole world was necessary. And God had that plan. It just doesn't seem to develop too quickly. There are some very hard things that happen next in the story. You remember the first is that Cain kills his brother Abel. Moses wrote that people began to increase and to fill the earth. But they were wicked in God's eyes. And then, then there's the story of Noah. Well, in the storybook version, has pretty colors and furry creatures and rainbows. But I'm not sure that this version quite captures the reality of what Moses is describing. And I've learned that there's a movie coming out in the spring about the life of Noah uh, that takes a little bit of a different view of it. And I got the preview of it. So let's watch a preview from this movie that's coming out at Easter time. Looks good, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. But you know, I don't know how much Noah looked like Russell Crowe. Um, <clears throat> This is kind of the gladiator version of Noah. But just from this clip, because I haven't seen the movie, it looks like they may get one thing right in this version. And that's the cost to Noah and to his family of being God's chosen. And the horrific cost to all of humanity for God's judgment. To actually think what it must have been like to survive a globally catastrophic flood. We saw some of what floodwaters could do back in 2011 when the tsunami hit Japan. You remember? Or back in 2004 when the tsunami hit Indonesia and over 200,000 people were killed. And to imagine what it must have been like for Noah and his family to be the sole survivors. Being God's chosen must have been unbearably hard. Well, over the succeeding centuries, and we don't know exactly how many, the earth was once again filling with people. And we read about Terah and his family. Abram was one of his sons. They lived here in Ur of the Chaldeans. And it is from this place, here's what Ur, what's left of Ur today. And from this family that God begins to unfold his plan that he mentioned way back in the garden. God chooses Abram and his wife Sarah to be the heads of the family from whom his redemption will come. God himself will be born into the family of their descendants to save the world he created. Paul puts it this way over a thousand years later in his letter to the church in Galatia. 
The scripture foresaw and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abram and his family had journeyed from Ur to Haran up in the north, and they had settled there. And God appeared to him there and said, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And so Abram left to go to a place he didn't know, to live among people he didn't know, far from his own homeland. That must have been very hard. You see, Abram and Sarah were God's chosen, and he made them a promise. He said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that promise brought them here, to the land of Canaan. Here it is on a map. This little tiny strip of land wedged between the Mediterranean Sea on the west and the deserts of Arabia to the east. This tiny strip of land, just 50 miles wide. Why here? Why would God bring them here? Why this land? Let's take a break from our story for just a moment to consider this question. Why this land? This little piece of land? What history reveals to us, and you will see on the video behind me, are that for thousands of years, from the writings of Genesis all the way to Revelation at the end of the Bible, this little piece of land becomes one of the most important pieces of real estate in this entire part of the world. This video shows how for centuries, empire after empire comes in and conquers and wants this land. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and after them the Greek Empire, also called the Macedonian Empire. They all want this little piece of land. And finally, the Roman Empire that conquers around the time of Jesus' birth and through his life. <clears throat> we'll come back to these empires in just a moment, but back to the story. Abraham, as God has changed his name now from Abram to Abraham after the promise, lived in this land, the land of Canaan, until his death. And he was buried there at a place called Hebron. This is Hebron today. This is the tomb. Uh, a shrine built over the tomb where Abraham was buried. Also buried there are Isaac, his son, and Jacob, Isaac's son. You remember their stories. There were fights over birthrights, fights with angels, fights over who was favorite, Jacob's sons selling Joseph into slavery, and a famine that eventually came to the land of Canaan that required Jacob and his sons and all of their peoples to leave the promised land and to go to Egypt to find food. These are hard times for the people of the promise. And over the years that follow, as they live in Egypt and grow in number, Moses writes, there arose a Pharaoh in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he was afraid of the Israelites because they had grown so many. And so he made the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, the people of the promise, slaves in Egypt. The descendants of Abraham... The children of God's promise, just a few generations before, are now slaves, oppressed, persecuted, in abject poverty and suffering. These are the chosen people of God, and they remained in this place of unbearable suffering. Do you remember how long? For 400 years. 400 years. Can you imagine that? 
That's almost twice as long as the U.S. has been a country. Why? Why would God leave them in suffering for that long? What was he doing? Why would he want this for his chosen people? Well, at the end of those 400 years, God chooses Moses through an almost unmentionable story of suffering and the deaths of many children, through Moses' exile into the desert, and then through horrific plagues and eventually the annihilation of the entire army of Egypt. God chooses Moses to lead his people out of Egypt and to the Promised Land. But on the way, they must pass through here. This is the wilderness of Sinai, the land between Egypt and the Promised Land. God led them, you remember, by a pillar of cloud and by a pillar of fire to this place, Mount Sinai, where he gave them the law to guide them. But you know the story. The people were impatient. They were afraid. They were unsure. And they sinned against God. And so... They had to remain here for 40 years, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, living on manna and quail. Until finally, finally, God is ready to lead them to the promised land. The promised land, the land promised to Abraham and his descendants, to their homeland, to a land flowing with milk and honey, But when they arrive at the border of this land, they discover that during the centuries they have been gone, others have moved in. This is one artist's idea of what one of the kingdoms looked like when the Israelites came home. Their homeland was filled with small kingdoms, fortress cities with high walls like the walls of Jericho. So after centuries in slavery, decades wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites return home to have to fight their way back into their homeland. Really? How unbearably hard that must have been. You know, I think sometimes we imagine that the Israelites look like these. Soldiers, mighty soldiers, holy soldiers, praying soldiers, but soldiers nonetheless. But I don't think that's true. I think they look more like this. This is a picture from the 1800s of slaves from Africa on a slave ship in the Persian Gulf. We have to remember that the Israelites were slaves. They had been slaves for generations. And they were faced now with decades of war to be able to live in the land promised to them. This is Megiddo. It's in the northern part of Israel. And this is what it looks like today. It's one of the kingdoms that Israel had to conquer. This is a model reconstructed by archaeologists to show what it would have looked like when Joshua and the Israelites came to face it. It, along with 30 other kingdoms just like it, Joshua and the Israelites conquered before Joshua's death. Hard, hard years. And then after the death of Joshua, there were still battles yet to fight. Peoples like the Philistines, the Midianites, the Geshurites, the Sidonians, and other kings of Canaan still live in the land. And so we read of the period of the judges. You remember? People who led Israel in these battles. And these are hard stories, like the story of Deborah and her conquests of the kings of Canaan. Or Gideon and his conquest of the Midianites. You remember 300 Israelites went to battle with over 135,000 Midianites. Or the story of Samson, who was blinded and martyred at the hands of the Philistines. 
All of these were God's chosen. These decades were filled with war and hardship. But at least the people were in the land. They were back home to the land that had been promised to Abraham. The land now named for his grandson Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. But you remember how the story goes. The Israelites were not satisfied with God's way of leading him through the judges. And so they wanted a king like the other countries around them. And so God gave them a king. Remember the first was Saul. And his story is a sad story. But after Saul was David. And his is a remarkable story. From shepherd boy to king of Israel. And in 1010 BC, if you do the math, that's 3,024 years ago. David was placed on the throne in Israel. And the legacy of his kingdom is still spoken of even today. The kingdom of Israel under David and then Solomon his son uh, are the glory days of Israel. This is an artist's drawing of what it would have looked like, the temple mount, the temple built by Solomon here. Israel expanded and gained prominence in the region during this time. And the Israelites now truly have the promised land that God had promised to them. But it doesn't last. And around 930 B.C., as Solomon's days come to an end, the kingdom is divided between his sons who fight over it. And for the next 200 years, it is divided between the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom, which goes by the name of one of the sons of Jacob, Judah. It is a period of strife under many unrighteous kings. And we read about it in the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Bible. But then... A kingdom from the north, Assyria, starts to gain power. And in 722 B.C., Sargon II, king of Assyria, attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and defeated them. The people were taken away into captivity to Nineveh. And here's what's left of Nineveh today. And they're never heard from again. The rest of the Bible, all we hear about are the people of Judah. Now remember the maps we looked at a few minutes ago that were kind of filtering through? This is the Assyrian Empire from the north. And they came down under Sargon and they conquered the northern captivity, the northern kingdom here and took them away into captivity. And all that's left now of the people of God are the people of Judah who begin referring to themselves as Israel. They were allowed to stay in their land, but it was controlled by the Assyrian Empire. Those that were left, again, were people in occupation. And they remained under Assyrian domination for about 150 years. Until Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who comes from further to the east. And he comes and he conquers, and as all of these guys, he wants this land too. And kind of ironically, as he takes Judah into captivity, they take the reverse route that Abraham had taken and go back to the land where Abraham was from. And they remain there for about 50 years. Until... Oh, here's Babylon now. That's what it looks like. <clears throat> There's some interesting stories that happen while they're in captivity in Babylon. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were cast into a fiery furnace for their faith in God. And so the people are there in captivity for 50 years until Cyrus, king of Persia, comes from further to the east and he conquers the Babylonians. And he, too, wants this land, but he has a different way of doing captivity. He allows the people to return home. And so the Israelites once again make the trek that Abraham had made, and they return to their homeland. 
only this time to find it in ruins, Jerusalem destroyed, the temple torn down. And Nehemiah writes that when he learned of this, he mourned and prayed for days. And so the people set about the work of rebuilding their home once again, still under occupation, but at least they're back in the land. And so the Old Testament comes to a close. But the story's not over, right? The plan of redemption has still not been fulfilled. For all of this time, God has been preparing the way for his coming. But he's not through preparing yet. Jesus doesn't come yet. Over 300 more years must pass, and many things happen between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. For one, another kingdom comes in. This time not from the east, but from the west. The Greeks, under Alexander the Great, they come in... And they conquer all this land. And, of course, they want this piece of land as well. <clears throat> the Israelites are allowed to stay there. But under Greek domination, they must become Greek. Because Alexander the Great, his great passion was to make the world Greek. And so he forced cultural submission. Everyone must dress Greek and they must learn the language Greek. And so Alexander hopes to make the whole world a Greek empire. But it doesn't last. Another empire further to the east, further to the west, sorry, comes to conquer under the Caesars. Rome, it sweeps through the region. And they also want to conquer this little piece of land where the people of Israel are. Why? Why does everybody want this little piece of land? God had promised this to Abraham. Why do they want it? And perhaps more puzzling to me, why would God choose this land? A land that is going to be at the center of global war for centuries to be the place where he forms a people through whom he will come. Now the reason the empires want it is very simple. For one reason, this little, ah, sorry, got to go back. There we go. This little piece of land, it forms a land bridge between all the wealth and the power of the northern hemisphere and that of the southern hemisphere. Travel in these days by sea was treacherous, and travel through the Arabian deserts was treacherous. And so the only way to do trade between the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere was through this tiny piece of land that formed a land bridge. That's why they wanted it. But why would God choose this land to bring Abraham to and to fashion his people there? You know, I think perhaps it's precisely for this reason precisely because it is going to be a land in conflict and under occupation. God's people are to be a people fashioned through suffering, a people dependent on Him, not on their own might, a people constantly under occupation, constantly seeking a Savior, a Messiah, who would rescue them from their suffering. And perhaps because this piece of land would become the most strategic place on earth from which to launch a new message to the world, the message of the gospel. Now let me explain what I mean. You see, up until Alexander the Great, the world spoke many languages, right? All the way back from the time of the Tower of Babel. Many languages. But Alexander the Great's passion was to make everybody speak one language. And so, for the first time, speak, people spoke one language. And then Rome comes in, and what do we know about Rome? All roads lead to Rome, right? Rome established an amazing network of roads throughout the entire empire, uniting Europe and Asia with Africa. 
And there were three major roads that passed through this tiny little land bridge. And those three major thoroughfares joined together and converged in one small place in the land of Israel. One little area right about here called Galilee, where Jesus was raised and where he began his ministry. There was no internet then, but what there was at just this precise moment in history was a system, a network of communication unlike any other that had ever been known in history so that a message could travel throughout the world quickly. And it passed right through this tiny little strip of land that God had promised to Abraham and right through these oppressed people. Paul wrote these words in his letter to the church in Ephesus. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The author of Hebrews put it this way, Christ has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages. At just the right time, Christ came to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so... God's plan, needed from the Garden of Eden, is finally brought to fulfillment in Christ. Redemption for sin has finally come, brought through the blood of Jesus Christ, and all the people of the world who follow God should now be able to unite in faith and in peace. That's what I would have thought. That's the way I would have written the story right there. But it's not what happened. Christ has finally come, yes. The long-awaited Messiah has come. God's plan of redemption is fulfilled in the coming to earth of Jesus Christ and his dying for our sins. But what we read about next in the story is not peace for his followers or prosperity for them, but a great persecution instead. It was first led by Jews against the Jewish followers of Jesus, and Paul was right at the center of that persecution and slaughter. It starts with the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. And it spreads until Paul is converted dramatically, you remember that story, to faith. And he becomes, amazingly, an apostle to spread the word of Jesus to the Gentiles. He is God's chosen. And what does it get him? He's beheaded in Rome. The Roman Empire has occupation of all this land. People of Israel are still occupied. And now they set out to destroy the people. So, in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus' resurrection to heaven, the Romans destroy Jerusalem and the temple of God, never to be rebuilt again, even to this day. And what follows is often called the Great Diaspora, that all the followers of God, Jews or Christians who live there, spread out and took off to regions of the world, thus sending God's message throughout the world. As for the followers of Jesus, all of the apostles are martyred for their faith, except for John. He is exiled here on the island of Patmos, and it is from here that he writes the book of Revelation, and the New Testament comes to a close. Wouldn't you have thought that when God had finally come, that when his plan of redemption was finally fulfilled, that he would grant peace to those who follow him? that this would be a time of prosperity for God's people. 
That's what the apostles thought. You remember they kept asking Jesus, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom as it was with David? And Jesus would say, you don't understand. It's not what happened. Following Jesus meant persecution. It meant suffering. It meant occupation and oppression. And for the next 250 years, Caesar after Caesar would persecute the followers of Jesus. Unimaginable suffering again for the people who would follow God. And we're only now up to 300 A.D. There's so much more story to tell to get to where we are today. But don't worry, we don't have time for that this morning. Now you may be wondering, why have I taken us on this journey through some of the harsh realities of the story of God's plan, especially right now, after the joy of Christmas? Well, it's precisely because of Christmas that I think we need to remind ourselves of this story. It is what makes Christ's coming make sense. You see, he did not come as a king in wealth and in power. He was born to a poor family, a family that was in scandal because Mary was an unwed mother. He came to an occupied people, suffering for centuries in oppression, oppression that God had allowed and clearly at times God had orchestrated. He came not to promise prosperity, but to show us a way to live life that would truly honor God. Back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in his home synagogue in Nazareth, which would have looked something like this. This is a reconstruction that stands in Nazareth today. Jesus stood up to start his ministry and claimed his mission by quoting the words of Isaiah the prophet. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a small town of Capernaum on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter's home was here. Jesus spent a lot of time here with his disciples teaching them about what his mission was, about the kingdom of God. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When he taught them to pray, he said, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is here now. And that it's not a kingdom of this world. It's not about earthly power. It's not about wealth. It's not even about land. It's a kingdom that is about justice and mercy and love. James, perhaps the brother of Jesus, wrote in his letter these words Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress. The kingdom of God is here, and we are all part of it. Our mission, it's the same as Jesus' mission. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We are the ambassadors of Christ's mission. In this very garden, the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed for all of us who would ever believe in the teaching of the apostles, that we would be united as one, 
so that the world would know who he is. The heart of God is with the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. And he has told us that we should follow him, that we should join our hands as one and serve those who are in need. So as we go together into this new year, for us as people in a land of prosperity, in a world filled with those who are suffering and who are oppressed, may we join hands with each other in the mission of God's kingdom to this world. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, your ways are beyond us. But what we know, the simple truth is that you love us. That you love us so much that you have given of yourself to come and live among us, to suffer along with us, and to enter the oppression that our world knows, Father. And through that, to bring your redemption. And so we ask, Father, that you would inspire us, that you would empower us, to be a part of that mission, to be your ambassadors in this world, that we might devote ourselves to living lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would give richly of what we have received to those who are in need. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey folks, thanks for being here on our last Sunday together of 2013. I hope each of your 2014 uh, has a great uh, things in store for you. And, uh, you know, just know this, you know, I appreciate, first of all, I want to say thanks to Barrett. Oh, there you are, Barrett. Everybody, thanks for uh, a great walkthrough of the story of the Bible. Thanks for that today. And, you know, the truth is that story, there's an overarching story to all, to the whole Bible. And we got a great snapshot of it, of God's love for us. You know, but don't make any mistakes because uh, thinking that, well, you know, I became a Christian or, you know, that life should be perfect. You know, Jesus never had the perfect life. He lived a perfect life, but didn't have it, right? I mean, he had all kinds of stuff happen to him. In fact, he left us with these words. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say, hey, in this world, you might have some problems. No, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. But then he says, take heart, because I've overcome the world. And, uh, and if you're a Christian with us this morning, then I hope that you can take heart in those words, because we should. We should hold on to that promise that he gave us. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're here kicking the tires on that Christianity thing and saying, well, what's it all about? Hey, I am glad you're here. Keep asking questions. Uh, talk to somebody maybe who invited you. Uh, come up after the service. Uh, we have folks from our prayer team who will be up on the front. Maybe, you know, the holidays can be tough. And they can have, there can be a lot of stuff that uh, weighs us down. If you have something that you just want to unload that you would like to be prayed for or just somebody to listen to you, feel free to come on up. Our prayer ministry team uh, will be up here afterwards, and they would love to be able to pray with you in, that, in a specific way. And so in the meantime, I hope you guys have a great ending to your 2013. Be safe this week. Um, one other thing, be safe as you walk out of here. Uh, I don't know if, what it was doing when you came in, but it's uh, started uh, uh, sleeting a little bit, and it's right around 32 degrees. So Actually, the surfaces are getting a little slicker, uh, slippery now. So be very careful as you're walking out, as you're walking to your car, all right? And uh, have a safe 2013 ending, and we'll see you next year, all right? Let me pray for us before we go. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and the promise that you make to us of eternal hope. We, th- we pr- thank you that in the midst of all the things that we might be going through, uh, that you are here with us in the midst of us. And so those promises we are going to cling to today and even in the coming days as we celebrate 2014. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week. We'll see you next year.